Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome back to Risking Enchantment. This is our first episode after the summer break and we're thrilled to be back with you. And joining me this week is Phoebe Watson. Hello! I'm so happy to have you back on for my first episode back. Of course, it hasn't been quite as big a break for us. We're recording this in July, but we did take a little bit of a break since the, since the last episode. I'm very excited about the prospect of gearing the podcast back up. I've got some great topics coming up. And we're starting with a good one. We are starting with one that, in some ways, I can't believe has taken us this long to get to. I know. But I think it's going to be a good one to start back up the series with a bang. So our topic for today is Jane Austen. Yay! (laughs) And uh, we're going to be looking specifically at the moral character of her heroines and what we can learn from that. I think it's really funny that the last time Phoebe was on, it was to talk about how pathetic female protagonists can often be in modern storytelling. And if you ever wanted to read books that are the exact opposite of that, you should read Jane Austen. (laughs) I mean, you should read Jane Austen anyway, but yeah. I am someone myself who came completely 180 on their perspective of Jane Austen. I was given a couple of like, it wasn't the books, but they were like introductions to the books when Mm. I was a teenager. And I remember thinking, ugh, I have no interest in reading this. Why would anyone be interested in this? And uh, by the time I got to university, just as I was going to university, I suddenly found myself very interested in reading them and watching all of the adaptations. And I haven't looked back since. Now it's my job to try and convince people to read them. And so hopefully, I think that's where we're going to start with, which is just a bit of an introduction to the books and why you should read them. I know lots of people have. They're not exactly unknown classics. But I think people who haven't read them often have a very distorted idea of what they are and what they're like and what they're about. And it can mean that people are quite resistant. But one of the big things I would say is that they're very characterised as women's books. And that is understandable. They do all feature female leads. They are about the domestic lives of women. But I would also like to make the case that I think anyone can find these books funny and engaging. And so hopefully there are a few listeners that might open themselves up to exploring it a little bit further if you haven't taken a look at them already. Uh, We will be speaking about the plots. We'll try and not give away any of the big dramatic reveal twists. But we will be talking about the plots in general. So obviously, if you don't want to get spoiled for those, maybe give this episode a skip. But me and Phoebe were saying, if you haven't read them at all and you don't know anything about them and you're wondering whether you'd be interested, I don't necessarily think that knowing chunks of the plot really takes away from your experience of the stories. No, I think we're both people who generally say read the book first. But particularly for these books, both of us came to them from adaptations. Yeah. I think you said you watched Sense of Sensibility. The Emma Thompson film was the first one that I really watched the whole way through and fell in love with. Yeah, whereas I grew up with the Keira Knightley version of Pride and Prejudice Mm -hmm. and went into Pride and Prejudice from there. Yeah, I, I think that there can be a real merit in using adaptations as a way in, particularly when the setting and the language and the formalities and we're going to be talking a lot about the formalities and the politeness and even things like I found it useful when I was reading it to have my edition 
explained what the different types of carriages oh, are. Oh yeah, mine did too. It had like these little asterisks and yeah. it's like the back and it... Like not too much because you don't want Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell style full page footnotes but just like a jig is different to a barouche because of these things. I found those helpful but at least in terms of getting into the language I actually think watching some of the adaptations is helpful and yeah so I would actually encourage many of them but despite Growing up with the Kira Knightley film, I think no. you've swapped completely to the BBC <laughs> Go miniseries. Go for the BBC. BBC miniseries yeah. with Colin Firth and all of that. You were the one who introduced me to that one, remember? Really? I'd totally forgotten about that. <laughs> Back when we lived together in university, which yeah. was wonderful. That's actually a really great example because your brother sat in watching yeah. those for us. And, I, and my dad loved them. Yeah, which is a great example of, I think people allowing themselves to like let their guard down with their expectations because I think the thing that people are most afraid of when it comes to Jane Austen and perhaps kind of rightfully so is having to read about really simpering sickly sweet female leads who do a lot of swooning and um, they're essentially afraid of reading the gothic novels that Jane Austen was deliberately not doing. Yeah, that's a really funny thing that I kind of get a little bit of a kick out of. It's a very, very nerdy sort of literary joke. But if you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you'll know that we talk about romance and the romance genre and how that has been traditionally different to what we term romance now, which is now we only kind of confine it to romantic relationships. But Previously, it would have been more about the sense of like sinister foreboding and exotic locations and travel and supernatural elements. And yes, romantic in terms of like amorous relationships, but yeah, it was a much bigger kind of genre. Whereas what Jane Austen was writing was what was termed realist or socio-realist because it wasn't about any of those things. It was about the real lives of real people that you could actually expect to happen in, in these kind of situations. So I always make the joke that Frankenstein is a romance novel, whereas Pride and Prejudice is not. <laughs> That's a good one. And yeah, her characters are also just so real Yeah, that they are people in a world that's a little bit different to ours, but it's one that you can really get into and immerse yourself in mm -hmm. and come to love them as actual people rather than characters of people. Yeah, they feel very true to life and that's going to be a huge part of why we're talking about the morals of Jane Austen's characters is because she crafts them so well and they're, every character is seen almost entirely through a moral light like what are their moral failures what are, what are their virtues like how do they succeed in the world and they're just so striking and believable and I was just saying to Phoebe I don't think there's a single other author in all of history who I would be more delighted and afraid to have describe me. Yeah you think of that as like going off into that world immediately, trying to wonder what you'd be like in that, mm -hmm. and then you shiver with horror and flee. Because <laughs> you know she would see through all of your mannerisms, through all of your pretenses that you put up, and she's so incisive and so concerned with virtue, but she's also so cutting and so sarcastic. It's often very funny. Like I was saying this to someone recently that Pride and Prejudice is laugh out loud funny and not just once or twice, like consistent. She reminds me in some ways, it's really funny because their topics are so different, but in terms of their attitudes to describing people and that sense of sarcasm, she really reminds me of Flannery O'Connor who said that I don't deserve any credit for turning the other cheek because my tongue is always in it. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I feel like... You do realise that you've just started a Jane Austen podcast with a quote of Flannery O'Connor. That's all you can expect from me, Phoebe. And I'm going to continue quote, I'm going to continue quoting Flannery O'Connor. I will also quote Jane Austen. So are we going to retaliate with a quote of how Jane Austen is funny? Yeah, in fact, she has this really hilarious quote about how... And, and I think this would really challenge people's preconceptions of what they think a, a Jane Austen novel is like. She said, I could not sit seriously down to write a serious romance under any other motive than to save my life. And if it were indispensable for me to keep it up and never relax into laughing at myself or at other people, I am sure I should be hung before I'd finished the first chapter. <laughs> So, I mean, all of her novels are so scattered through with all of these very cutting and funny remarks. Uh, one of my favourites is from Pride and Prejudice, where the father of the main family sort of has to begrudgingly tell his daughter, Mary, who doesn't enjoy socialising and prefers to just play the piano. And he has... Oh, a that's such a mean one. You have delighted us long enough. <laughs> It's amazing. But yes, it's very cutting, but it's also very funny. And he also has, his wife is quite neurotic and quite flappy and always like in a tizzy. And so she's always complaining about her nerves. She says to Mr. Bennett, you delight in vexing me. You have no compassion for my poor nerves. And he replies, you mistake me, my dear. I have a high respect for your nerves. They are my old friends. I have heard you mention them with consideration these last 20 years at least. <laughs> you did very well to not laugh while reading that. <laughs> They're wonderful. and I think almost all the novels are pretty funny. Certainly Pride and Prejudice and Emma are probably the funniest. And I'm sure anyone who's read Jane Austen will know all of this back to front. So apologies for taking a little bit of time to get to the topic itself. But just to give like a little bit of an introduction, there are unfinished novels and like kind of part novels. But she wrote six main novels, some yeah. of which were published after she passed away. So she published, I believe, the order is Sense of Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park, Emma, Northanger Abbey and Persuasion. So those are her six novels and we'll, we will be touching on pretty much all of them during this discussion. So hopefully we'll be able to give some context as we're going along. And will we reveal our favourite now or leave it for people to figure out? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe at the end, we can say it at the end. Mm -hmm. But to give a little bit of perspective on Jane Austen, I think it's always kind of interesting to reflect on the fact that Jane Austen was someone who never married, but she she stayed very close with her family her whole life. And I think the family dynamic in her books are so real and so tangible. In a painful way as well as a nice way. Yeah, like You absolutely. have some beautiful relationships between sisters and you have some horrendous ones that break your heart. Yeah. And she also really experienced the full spectrum of, I would say, middle class life. I, I don't think she ever dip down into like the real sense of poverty but within the spectrum of what was the middle class at that time she very much fluctuated across the entire spectrum so she was at the very bottom rung of that ladder for quite a while in which they couldn't afford very much and she was quite ill and they sort of were moving from very sad apartments to very sad apartments and then throughout her life it fluctuated and so I think it Jane Austen had that ability to look into all kinds of aspects of these people's lives. And her stories are very much primarily about this kind of middle class. But all of it is really grounded in her moral and her specifically Christian beliefs. Her father was a vicar and 
she was very devoutly religious. And this was also at a time where that meant for her and her family that she prayed six times a day. They prayed as a household twice a day. In some ways, I think we can take, especially outside of a Catholic context, there's some expressions of Christianity now that are very personal and not made manifest in very obvious ways. I was reading, which I didn't realise at all, which is that when she died, she was buried in Winchester Cathedral. But it wasn't for her writing because she wrote that anonymously, but that she was revered within her community for her consistent charity work. That's really cool. It was something that was very manifest. And actually, that's one of the really important parts, which is that for her, your faith was something that you did more almost than something that you felt. That it was very much a set of moral standards based on virtues that dictated how you lived your life. And there's also quite a visible church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like it is in the era of the Church of England as a visible institution. Mm-hmm. And it's a corrupt institution, but it's still an institution. And you have good clergymen and bad clergymen. Yeah, absolutely. And I was reading some of the prayers that she wrote. Oh, lovely. Which I thought was really interesting. The person who was, uh, this was in an article from the Imaginative Conservative on Jane Austen's morality. And um, and I'll link all of these in the show notes, but they were talking about how when she writes prayers, she uses the plural we, that it's even then it's not so much about I, it's about a collective, a sense of like community and social cohesion with all of this. But it's so clear how much primacy she bases her faith on how you live it. So there's two, There's this is from prayer number two, which says... We are conscious of many frailties. We remember with shame and contrition the many evil thoughts and neglected duties. And we have perhaps sinned against thee and against our fellow creatures in many instances which we have no remembrance. May the comforts of every day be thankfully felt by us. May they prompt a willing obedience of thy commandments and a benevolent spirit towards every fellow creature. And then in prayer three, and I think... This is so fitting given how much we were saying it, like how funny she is and how like flippant she can be, that how she's such an example of how you can use wit and use humour without it being cruel or callous. So she says, Incline us, O God, to think humbly of ourselves, to be severe only in the examination of our own conduct to consider our fellow creatures with kindness and to judge of all they say and do with that charity which we would desire from them ourselves. Yeah, applying cuttingness in the right place. There's actually a great quote from Pride and Prejudice where she expands this further and it's talking about Elizabeth Bennet who's the protagonist of Pride and Prejudice who's like, her thing is being known for her wit and vivacity. She is one of the funniest heroines of all times. Yes, talking about how that she doesn't cross those lines. I hope I never ridicule what is wise or good. Follies and nonsense, whims and inconsistencies do divert me, I own, and I laugh at them whenever I can. But that distinction between laughing at the kind of follies of the world. Yeah, it's really interesting. Which just goes to show how much all of Jane Austen's characters are really based on this moral landscape. And that's one of the things that, again, challenges the conception, which is her novels are not so much about finding a man as they are about a journey of self-discovery for both, like often for both the kind of heroine and hero, but that 
to see yourself clearly and to correct the wrongs within yourself. And when you have addressed your own moral imperfections, not then that you you deserve a husband, but that you're ready to love freely, like, so as to best prepare you to love another in marriage. Yeah, like, the characters grow and change throughout the novel. Um, and that's one of the joys of kind of following them. Yeah. We're going to talk about Emma later and how she grows. But mm-hmm. Even Elizabeth learns not to judge, yeah. not to jump to conclusions quite a lot. Because she makes quite a lot of assumptions at the beginning of the book. It was So Pride and Prejudice was almost called First Impressions, which tells you exactly yeah. what the novel is kind of like centred on. She gets a good first impression of one guy and a bad first impression of another guy. There's that sense of that, like, your expectations are turned upside down and that you can be wrong and learning how to be wrong. And so the reason why I really want to look at this is because I feel like in a world in which we've dropped a lot of the formalities around social engagements, that's one of the kind of hurdles you have to cross when you're reading it, which is to discover that you can't talk to someone who you haven't been introduced to, or you have to have this kind of approach to this kind of situation, or that there's all of these very rigid roles around rules of social niceties, or like chaperoning, or self-expression that we don't really have anymore. And while that can be a good thing and it can lead to maybe a more egalitarian sort of society. With losing that, we've lost a lot of what was essentially a moral kickstart to how you act in society. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've also lost a sense of how those rules and niceties are also there for our protection. Yeah. Like, particularly to a chaperoning. Mm -hmm. And it seems very restrictive and then you see in some of the novels the absolutely detrimental effect that the bad behavior of another character can have yeah and how important it is for them to safeguard themselves and their families yeah and how much Jane Austen valued even beyond just being socially nice and we'll talk about the difference between being socially nice and being virtuous in a minute but she valued being a person of moral integrity way above getting a husband. Yeah, like we were saying earlier, if you when you're saying Pride and Prejudice, like as a novel about getting a man, mm-hmm. it starts with that famous line of a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Yes. But, like halfway through the book, Elizabeth Bennet turns down the best proposal for marriage she's ever likely to get in a million years. Mm-hmm. If you think of the middle class on a scale, mm-hmm. she's at the bottom level. She's got what's called, like, the poor man's dowry. She doesn't have much to her name. She doesn't have many connections, which is, not, like, it's not just about the money. It's also about having good, solid basic connections. And then you've got Mr. Darcy, who not only has a lot of money, but he's related to nobility. He's set to marry an earl's daughter, and that's the level of disparity between them, and yet she turns him down on a matter of principle. There's something that I find particularly interesting now is how little people's word counts for anything, that like we've got it with the age of Twitter and, you know, presidents and everything can say literally nonsense, and it doesn't matter because your word doesn't matter in the same way. Yeah, we've gone to things having to be written down and signed and dotted yeah. before they're binding. 
And even then, like, when you think of the ways that we treat things like marriage or even, like, some forms of legal contracts and things like that. And I know that in some way they're all breakable. And whereas a promise made off the fly in a conversation in a Jane Austen novel is a matter of utmost importance to keep because that is your word. And I think there's so much we could learn and bring into our own lives now which is about cultivating an integrity that often is completely hidden and often doesn't do you any material good yeah and integrity made of steel regardless of its impact on your material welfare yeah and when we were talking about pride and prejudice there it just reminded me there's two characters who end up getting married in very deceitful and inappropriate setting oh yeah And Elizabeth says, How little of permanent happiness could belong to a couple who were only brought together because their passions were stronger than their virtue. Jane Austen really doesn't believe in disregarding your virtues in order to have the sort of romance of your dreams or get the man of your dreams. That It's so little about that. Yeah, it's about who you are and being true to... Not only who you are, but the better version of who you want to be. Yeah. I think one of the characters who displays that really well is in Sense Sense and Sensibility. Yeah. Eleanor. In some ways, Sense and Sensibility is kind of the ideal novel in this context to talk about because it is about two sisters who one is kind of the example of constancy, so that's sense, and the other is the example of inconstancy and like... Emotion. Emotion and... um, frivolity in a way uh yeah it's funny because i'm not sure whether sensibility was actually thought of as that bad a thing at the time no it was it was seen as like almost like more like an artistic temperament yeah an attraction to the deep emotions of poetry or you know do you want to give a description of marianne so yeah there's two sisters eleanor and marianne dashwood they also have another sister who gets promptly forgotten in the novel but there you go um, that's what happens. She's to... too young to be of consequence. <laughs> exactly. And they had a good fortune, but it was inherited by their half-brother, who was supposed to take care of them and just doesn't. Which Fails made... utterly. Yeah, makes John Dashwood one of the least favourite characters in all of Jane Austen's oh, yeah. writing. So they find themselves in much reduced circumstances. Like they go from this great big fancy estate house, mm-hmm. which... Their half brother and his wife move into way too early. Like, like they're really rude about it. Like pushing them out. They're almost. like pushing down the door yeah. as soon as the casket's gone, type thing. And so they find themselves in a cottage on the land of a distant relative. And uh, in the in the middle of all of this, both of them encounter people that they fall in love with. It's quite funny. I was just watching it with my friend Zoe two weekends ago she had never seen it before and she was like Rachel this is really distressing why have they met the good looking guys a third of the way into the movie (laughs) what's gonna happen now (laughs) and so what happens is Eleanor finds out that the man that she was in love with Edward is secretly engaged to someone else and he became engaged to this other girl when they were very young and it was clearly something very impulsive but Edward is obviously so bound by his word with proposing that he's refusing to back down on it and Eleanor is told by this woman her name is Lucy Steele in confidence 
So she promised to keep it a secret before she even knew what it was. And so she's in this situation where her heart has been completely broken, but she can't tell anyone about it. And to put that in context, her sister and her mother both assume that she's going to marry Edward. Yeah. They um, just ass- and keep talking about it and keep wondering when he's visiting and she's in this really horrible position of knowing a secret that's breaking her heart mm-hmm. and not being able to share it with those she loves most. Yeah. And yet she keeps it. Yeah. And Lucy Steele, the breaker of her heart, is also deliberately being rude to her. You kind of get the feeling that she suspects that Edward has feelings for Eleanor. So she keeps kind of rubbing it in her face. So Eleanor is in this situation where she is the in the prime example where everyone now would be saying like, go behind Lucy's back, like do all of these things. And she refuses to, that there's something unbreakable inside of her that says that that's wrong to do. Yeah, that in this world we'd say, what do you owe Lucy? Mm-hmm. Whereas for her, it's not what she owes Lucy, it's what she owes herself. Yeah. And this is coupled with Marianne. So Marianne is the big, bright-eyed, romantic one. She's constantly impolite because she's so artistically in tune that she couldn't lie to anyone just for the sake of being polite. So she throws these sort of, like, she either huffs in silence or says these, uh, you know, really inappropriate, like, hurtful things. She's also, this makes her sound very bad, she's also very charming and very lovely and bright and enthusiastic, but... Vivacious. Yes, exactly. And she falls for the tall, dark, strapping, handsome man. Who rescues her when she's fallen down a hill and hurt her ankle. And I mean, it's all perfect in the romantic sensibility of Marianne. But he lets her down in a huge way and never quite proposes to her and leaves her hanging and cuts off contact from her. And there's a whole lot of like subplot in there. But she is completely dropped by him in a very public and very humiliating way. And throughout the novel, no matter what happens, she kind of goes into hysterics about it and becomes very upset and cries endlessly and and has all of these fits of emotion. And Eleanor has to be the one in the middle of all of this, in the middle of all her, her own like troubles, be the one to be there for her and comfort her. And make up for the social niceties that she's not doing. Yeah, absolutely. And so we read a really... Excellent article. Unfortunately, it's on JSTOR, which means you can sign up for a free account, but it's not just readily available, but it's called Polite Lies and Sense and Sensibility. And it just goes through a really thorough exploration of what it means to be polite and how our view of being polite is maybe off kilter with what it means in terms of our own moral character. Yeah. Should I give the quote? Yes. Judgment requires being able to give oneself time, but human relations do not wait for judgment to be conclusive. They happen in the meantime. Jane Austen's solution is decorum, that classic social principle for keeping our judgment from being irretrievable in our acts. Which is is so important within the story because Eleanor is the one who keeps back her feelings, even for Edward, and doesn't expose herself that way, whereas Marianne is constantly she constantly talks about how well time alone does not determine the closeness of our connection and she does things that are very improper and she says well if it were improper I should be aware of it and so she shows the world how much she's attached to John Willoughby who is her beau 
And so it's this real lesson in what it means to hold back or be reserved and what that means in terms of the genuineness of our feelings because Eleanor is constantly accused of not having strong feelings because she doesn't perform strong feelings but that there's so much we can learn about being moral because not only just with her romantic attachments but Marianne is just very quick to judge everyone so as soon as she decides that someone isn't up to her moral standards she kind of just shuts down immediately and refuses to engage with them or insults or, or insults them and so she has to grow and learn. But the reason why is not just that, like, because I think we can be so dismissive of politeness as just like, I want to make everyone happy and nice and move the conversation along nicely. And I want to look well. Yeah, I want to fit in. I don't want to cause waves. And none of those are actually particularly good moral reasons. They're not genuine virtues. Yeah, whereas I think sense and sensibility shows us the freedom that comes from that politeness and that decorum. One of the other quotes from the article is, Marianne, accepting the expression of sensibility as reality, has been trapped by their rigidity. Eleanor, knowing that the social forms are made up, does not mistake them for human nature. Marianne cannot imagine a world in which she does not say what she feels, to the point of selfishness. It is Eleanor who controls her own disappointment in love, because, from the book, I did not love only him. Yeah. Because she relegates her feelings out of a love for those around her, that she recognises her feelings aren't the only important ones, that other people also have feelings to be respected. And if that means saying what she doesn't feel and withholding what she does feel, they are worth doing that for. Yeah, and that in the article it goes on to explain how giving yourself the time which politeness affords you gives you the time to truly love people, to not just make snap judgments about them and stick them in that box in a bit like the first impressions we were talking about with Pride and Prejudice, that if you are approaching a person with true love, you'll give them the space to show their qualities and show their virtues and not just be sort of morally righteous and say, you have offended my sensibilities in some way and ergo you are sort of relegated to a camp of people which are the not nice people you know yeah and so the really compelling things about sense of sensibility is watching marianne's character grow and come to that realization and you know still be herself absolutely but herself with a sense of self-knowledge and of reflection and so she has this speech at the end where she talks about how she's been slighted in love and Eleanor asks do you compare your conduct with his and she says no I compare it to what it ought to have been I compare it with yours and then later she says whenever I looked towards the past I saw some duty neglected or some failing indulged Everybody seemed injured by me. The kindness, the unceasing kindness of Mrs. Jennings, I had repaid with ungrateful contempt. To the Middletons, to the Palmers, the Steeles, to every common acquaintance even, I have been insolent and unjust, with a heart hardened against their merits, and a temper irritated by their very attention. To John, to Fanny, yes, even them, little as they deserve, I had given less than their due. Which I think shows how, like, a sense of reflection and a sense of seeing your place within your community informs your conscience. Yeah, and there's another beautiful quote from Marianne to redeem her fully. 
where Marianne felt that she had injured, no reparation could be too much for her to make. Yeah. And Which I, I think kind of puts her character into perspective, that she goes wildly wrong, mm-hmm. and then when she's brought back yeah. to swinging right... From a religious point of view, we would say like she's running to Jesus, like that she's really embracing what it means to be corrected. Yeah. And to have a kind of slight on her character be accepted and reformed. And like she's not perfect after that. No. But she does have that change of heart, which is really beautiful. Yeah, and I think it's it's so wonderful that to to see it. And I thought it was really interesting to compare that to the, you know, St. Teresa of Avila talks about cultivating the cell of inner knowledge as the way to growing in holiness. Mm. That this self-knowledge, and that's so central to what Jane Austen does, that the ability to have self-knowledge and see yourself clearly is just like at the crux of all of these stories. And I think that's why, I mean, obviously it's wonderful to have the romantic stories and the settings are beautiful and the language is like shimmering light across a page. Oh, but, beautiful. But what's at the core of it is this clarity of moral vision and seeing these characters cultivate virtue in different ways, in a really proactive way, that they want to be moral people and that... Because that that's almost Marianne's biggest failing at the beginning, is that she sees herself as so completely moral that she's unreprimandable. Yeah, and they're also often striving against failures of those around them. Mm-hmm. Like what you said with Marianne of, I don't compare my behaviour to his. Mm-hmm. She's not excusing her behaviour because of... He did something much, much worse. Oh, far worse. But ergo, the thing that I did was fine. No, that like there is a much closer comparison that you can can draw on it's not just about othering other people yeah and I think that's such a powerful lesson for us to learn as well yeah that it's very easy to kind of think oh well I'm not doing that and caring about the small things and this is where I think in some ways (laughs) Phoebe and I have had like a long running discussion for about two years now on who is more deserving of our sympathy Marianne from Sense of Sensibility or Emma from the titular novel Emma, because they're both similar in the in their way that they're very headstrong and self-assured about their own kind of moral status. And they also kind of fail in similar ways in that there is a, a failure to sympathise and love the people around them in a particular way. And so when we were researching this topic, Phoebe texted me saying, is Emma the only one who... What was your exact crux with Emma? Well, I was going down through the list of different heroines, and at that stage we were looking for a moment where the character excelled in virtue. Mm-hmm. Like, the first one that jumped to mind was Pride and Prejudice, where Elizabeth goes to her sister's side. Mm -hmm. Like, her sister is sick in a different place, and Elizabeth puts herself in a really uncomfortable situation just to be there for her. Yeah. Whereas, I got to Emma, and I was like, ooh, that's where she fails. That's where she fails. She Um, has this one big climactic moment of moral failure. More than one. Well, yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of even more to the point. Yeah. Like, she fails in a couple of different ways. Yeah. And probably more so than any of our other heroines, in that Marianne is also led on into bad behaviour. Yeah. Whereas Emma, in at least one of the situations, just waltzes into it despite having been continually warned that it's a bad idea. Yeah. So do you want to give like an introduction to the story of Emma? Okay. So 
Emma is the richest girl in the neighbourhood. In the words of her counterpart, Mr Knightley, she suffers from being a pretty woman and a spoilt child. (laughs) And near the beginning of the novel, she's kind of become a bit of a matchmaker and she takes under her wing this girl from the boarding school who's socially quite inferior to her and essentially talks her to being in love with someone else in the novel, Mr. Elton, mm-hmm. who's the new curate. But through promoting that match, which is very ineligible, Mr. Elton thinks himself encouraged by Emma to the extent of him proposing to her instead. Yeah. And it means a real embarrassment for her friend Harriet that she's raised up and a real moment of utter contempt for Miss Elton, who she would never consider. Yeah. That she's kind of put herself up on this pedestal that she couldn't imagine him thinking that it was okay to propose to her. Yeah. It's a very, like, humbling moment. Yeah. So that's kind of a really interesting one that she's really walked into because Mr Knightley was warning her about it. Not necessarily that Mr Elton was becoming particular in his attention to her, but that he would never marry Harriet. Yeah. And that he was not a good enough man to marry Harriet either. But it's really a novel about having generosity to people in different positions in life. Yeah, and how that generosity might have to take different forms. And also, I think one of the important things is to see Emma as... Because she is such a, a... Again, another one of Jane Austen's very complex characters. That people can have a huge amount of virtue in one area and then have blinkers on in another. Oh, yeah. So one of the most endearing things about Emma is that she has this very trying... Like, as a reader, very annoying father who is this hypochondriac and essentially goes out of his way to sort of spoil every situation by taking too much care of it. Like, nobody can go out to the party because it's far too cold, or nobody can have rich foods because it'll make their stomachs turn. Yeah, there's one instance where they say that he would have, by his generosity, wanted them to eat as much as he wanted, but his care for their digestion probably meant that they couldn't eat very much at all. Mm -hmm. So Emma is really glad to be able to kind of come into the afterwards and give them both a massive slice of cake. (laughs) Emma interacts with her father in a way that is only generosity and patience. Like, for me, when I'm reading it, I would get so short-tempered, even if I was trying to be patient, but she has a willingness to take the time to accommodate her father and her father's eccentricities. And so to see people not just as binary good slash bad people, but that they can have an enormous capacity for virtue, but in some ways they need to cultivate it in other areas in their lives, that they just don't see the fullness of what's happening. Yeah, they don't see the fullness of what they're doing. Yeah. Like, part of what she's doing with Harriet in terms of taking her under her wing could have, in one sense, been a very good thing if she had had the sense not to meddle where she shouldn't have meddled, Mm -hmm. which is in somebody else's love life. Yeah. And so when I said she has one big climactic moment, the novel sort of hinges on a moment in which she, in the spirit of fun and games of like a party, she unthinkingly makes a very cruel mocking point about someone in a much lower station than herself. And it's only a second. That's the thing that, like, it's so funny to think of. Despite all of this meddling with the Harriet and, like, the matchmaking, and obviously those are the main part of the novel and all of the action is centred around it. But in terms of the moral 
climax. It's this moment where she realises that she's punched down, essentially. and, and Or her, somebody else brings it to her attention. Her attention. And she realises how callous and cruel she's been in that moment for the sake of nothing because she's just but like how many of us have been in that situation where there's been like a scapegoat in a social situation and somebody makes fun and you hop on board and you say something and it's so familiar and it's so realistic to people's lives that it's not this far off thing that virtue happens up on a hill in a battle somewhere that it's it's in a situation where you're having tea with friends and you have an opportunity to say something mean about someone and you don't take it but what if you do and what does that mean and she takes it so seriously when pointed out to her like she sees how much you can extrapolate out from that one moment yeah there's the great quote of badly done emma badly done and then she goes home in tears yeah and takes that and goes the next morning to try and make amends yeah actually being active in that and again a bit like it's funny because she has so much patience for her father but the woman who she kind of directs this insult to is kind of very similarly annoying like it's that same kind of testing trying need for a lot of patience so it's not like it comes out of nowhere like you can see how much you would be in a situation where you would get frustrated with someone. yeah like what she says is the worst because it's true yeah and so it's important but it is about saying that a single moment like that like a small thing is important and is worth striving for like it is worth being better than that it's not necessarily about great heroic moments it is about the daily fight to be a virtuous person in a conversation and even i would say that that small tipping point comes from other small moments of her maybe complaining about this character and Mm -hmm acknowledging her flaws where she should have maybe exercised more patience Mm -hmm. and those things kind of build up until when she's in the moment and in the frivolity yeah she lets go because she because she's been letting herself go in private yeah and that that's another thing with Jane Austen that I think we've touched on it a little but that you have to have just as much integrity behind closed doors as you do in public. This is what we're saying about it going beyond politeness. It goes beyond easing social situations. Because in that setting, then you can be whatever you like when you're private because it's not a social setting. But it's about doing it all the time. And this is where I'm going to bring in another Flannery O'Connor quote. <laughs> uh, you'll have to forgive me. It's in her letters, The Habit of Being. I really recommend everyone to read it. But she's writing about herself in quite a disparaging way but of course we with like the benefit of hindsight know that she you can see her holiness despite the fact that she's saying she's not holy which I think is a a trait of most saints anyway but she said I'm not a mystic and I do not lead a holy life not that I can claim any interesting or pleasurable sins my sense of the devil is strong but I know all about the garden variety, pride, gluttony, envy and sloth. And what is more to the point, my virtues are as timid as my vices. I think sin occasionally brings one closer to God, but not habitual sin and not this petty kind that blocks every small good. A working knowledge of the devil can be very well had from resisting him. I love that. I think that's going to bring us into... One of our other heroines. Mansfield Park? Yeah, probably the most timid of all of them. Yes. Yeah, Mansfield Park is definitely the one I think 
typically readers struggle the most with. I think we should take a moment to apologise for anyone who's on a whirlwind tour at the moment of this novel, this novel, this novel, this novel. Apologies. <laughs> They're all great, read them all. Yes, and they all exemplify what we're talking about in different ways, but hopefully it's not too confusing. I'm sure when I go back to edit this I'll be like caught in a whirlwind of Jane Austen names. Um, what better place to be? <laughs> but Mansfield Park is typically people's least favourite novel. And if you want to read a great defence of Mansfield Park, I would really recommend Hayley Stewart, who is on another podcast called Fountains of Carrots, which is also very good. It's another kind of Catholic perspective on life and vocation and also kind of art and culture as well. But she, on her blog, which is Carrots for Michaelmas, wrote a defence of Mansfield Park and it's the best one I've ever read. I think it's brilliant. So shout out to Hayley. It was great. Mansfield Park is centred on... Fanny Price and she is the poor relative of of a wealthier family and is taken in as a generosity and is raised with them but also I guess in a way apart because she's not actually part of the family. Yeah one of I've just started rereading Mansfield Park I've got about a quarter of the way through but one of the quotes that came up to just show how she's taken in is nobody meant to be unkind but nobody put themselves out of their way to secure her comfort. And it's a very telling story of a family of indolent, happy-ish people who don't practice virtue yeah, and undermine each other in different ways. That they think they're good enough because they're not doing anything particularly bad. Yeah. And there's an aunt called Aunt Norris who... Mrs Norris from... Harry Potter is named after this character as a jab at how hated she is. I only made that connection like two days ago. Really? Oh, that was one of my fun Harry Potter facts I had growing up. But she's just so rude and she constantly makes Fanny feel like she's caused so much trouble to the family yeah, for taking the, them in. The Fanny should be so grateful to the family mm-hmm. for having taken her. And also so grateful to her, the aunt, Mrs. Norris, for organising it. Yeah. Like, Mrs. Norris essentially talks other people into doing... The good that she can't be bothered to do herself. And then takes credit for it. Yeah. And so Fanny Price is exactly the type of character who would feel that very greatly. She's very reflective, quiet, timid. She's also typically shown to be kind of frail in terms of her health she's not very well she's not kind of robust but she's she can't like she can't walk very far any kind of exertion exertion will tire her out but at the same time she will exert herself to serve those around her and really goes out of her way to make their lives easier and the reason why a lot of people don't like her is because she's this very One of the articles describes her as raw morality. Like, all she is is, like, a good person. For a lot of people, for myself actually included, it can be quite tiring to read because she's a bit of a killjoy in many ways. I would say, at the moment at least, because I am finding it quite tiring to read, but the tiresomeness is coming from Mrs Norris. (laughs) (laughs) Because she's not just a bad character, Mm -hmm. but that you actually have, like, a page long of her conversation, which is painful. (laughs) You're like, ugh. But I think what's really clever about what Jane Austen does in Mansfield Park is to show us how 
unappealing virtue can look mm. and how appealing because there's these characters that come into the family they start staying with the family and they're very we would call them very cool and very suave they're full of life and they're all wit and sparkling joy and all of these things but it doesn't come from a place of virtue and even when they do good things it's only so that they look good doing them or that they will get something out of it and yeah it's a very telling difference between the propriety that comes from just having to obey the social norm and look good mm-hmm. or the propriety that comes from an actual willingness to do good. Yeah. Um, I've got an excellent quote on that, actually. So the family is visiting another house and one of the girls is in a situation where she has to talk to this older lady and is really miserable. And it says, The politeness which she had been brought up to practice as duty made it impossible for her to escape, while the want of that higher species of self-command, that just consideration of others, that knowledge of her own heart, that principle of right, which had not formed any essential part of her education, made her miserable under it. It's such a fascinating study of the testing points of what it means to be virtuous. And what we were saying about Emma being like concerned about the details is so explored in Mansfield Park. So it... it it's and for like quite a lot of things happen in say sense sensibility like there's characters coming in and out and they go to London and then this happens and they go to this place and that is echoed in a lot of the novels even Emma which takes place in very much one location still has a lot of sort of comings and goings whereas Mansfield Park feels like I guess it's about 10 people locked in a house together for the entire entire novel it's not quite that but it feels that way and it's almost like one of those stories for kids where like the you know the summer holidays would started and it started raining what are they gonna do they're stuck in the house you know so there's all these young people stuck in this uh, stately home and they decide to put on a play and this becomes one of the crucial points of the story fanny price takes a stand against them putting on this play and it makes her wildly unpopular. She won't be in it, which means that they're down a character that they needed for the play that they want to put on. But also there's such a sense of, and we've all felt it when someone takes a stand against what you're doing, the kind of moral judgment implicit in that. But the reason she decides to not partake in this is first of all, that the the head of the family, the father is away and he would not approve of the play. And so she instinctually feels that it is wrong to do something that he would not approve of. And the reason that he would not approve of and why also why Fanny would not approve of putting on the play is because even like the particular play that they choose, all of it is designed to throw the different characters together. They have to act scenes where they're potentially kissing and... Is it called a love is affair or something It's like called that? something very blunt like that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not called something subtle. <laughs> No, it's very much like we're going to deliberately be a bit risque and say, oh, but it's fine. It's just for a play, you know. And and what it is, is about what as Catholics we would call the near occasion of sin. Yeah. And it's really interesting because you have the other character who's kind of not quite an example of moral virtue. And um, so Edmund is the son of in this family mm-hmm. and he's maybe six, seven years older than Fanny. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's kind of the best of the lot. Like, he mm-hmm. takes pretty good care of her most of the time. Yeah. Um, and he's the one... He's going into the church as a vicar. 
and yet he's kind of borderline between does he is he in the play is he not and he gets swayed into it yeah while Fanny's taking her stand yeah and the whole thing kind of ends up revealing like more sinister motives or encouraging particular behaviors that should not have been encouraged and it is such an example of like i was just listening to another great uh, i'm giving all the shout outs to the different catholic podcasts although this episode will be quite old by the time (laughs) that our episode comes out which is for catholic stuff you should know they posted one of father nathan's parish talks on forgiveness but he was talking about how about how you know whether something is a mortal sin and he says if you don't want to go to cleveland don't get on the bus to cleveland <laughs> that's and, a great one i mean first of all don't buy a ticket for don't cleveland. buy a ticket don't get on the bus don't like don't do- look up the bus times and then eventually yeah don't get on that bus so like all of these little things of like if you don't want to end up somewhere don't take these micro steps towards it. Don't, you know, engage in these behaviours that you know, like, maybe you can pull yourself back from. Like, sure, you can check a bus timetable, but that doesn't mean you're going to Cleveland. But suddenly you find yourself on the bus to Cleveland. Like, it's it's such a good example of, uh, like, what it means to be in a near occasion of sin. And that's why this this thing which when you're reading it because like I said in many ways that not a lot happens in this novel so the the play is the first thing to sort of happen so as a reader I certainly felt like well I just wanted to go along with it because like that means something's gonna happen (laughs) but you do kind of feel like oh come on Fanny yeah it's just a play like it's just one thing like even if something bad happens you're not really culpable for it you're just being in a play and you know Austin and Fanny Price her character are telling us no that's not good enough you have to hold yourself to a moral high standard you can't compromise yourself and when you do it leads to hurt and ruin and all kinds of negative consequences yeah because we see later in the novel when two of the characters run away together and do something very scandalous they so both of them have a sister and they ruin both of those sisters lives as well as their own yeah because that means that their sister's prospects are ruined. Yeah. No, like, going back to Pride and Prejudice, just to quote it, who will take us now with a fallen sister? Yeah. Um, and that's a very real thing of the time, but also a very good illustration of the community effects of sin. Yeah. That what you do has a reflection on your family. And also just, like physically impacts us so like now you mightn't say that just because one member of your family did something scandalous that say like your quote-unquote prospects are ruined but that sin is real and impacts the world around you and forces your community to take on the effects of your sin and we have really lost that sense of community when it comes to recognizing that we have a duty to be good upstanding people not that we have a duty to be sort of perfect to make ourselves perfectly useful for everyone around us but that sin is not private and that our relationship with god cannot be purely private that it is something that impacts our community and the world around us at the very beginning you were talking about jane austen and chapels Mm -hmm. and there was a really interesting quote in mansfield park about as i said edmund is going into the church he and another couple of characters are talking about that obligation to pray every day because they're in this chapel and one of them is complaining about oh you're getting the servants up and when they'd much rather have like an extra 10 minutes in bed and they can can't they pray so much better 
when they're not being obliged to pray and not being forced into the chapel. It's kind of her stance on it. And he says, the mind which does not struggle against itself under one circumstance, aka in the chapel, would find objects to distract it in the other. I believe, and the influence of the place and of example may often rouse better feelings than are begun with. That's really fascinating. And I think so much of our culture would say that now. We, we had a sermon from a priest this weekend who was saying that like, there's never the perfect time to pray. That you'll never, in terms of doing your to-do list, like, oh, if only I finish all of my to-do list, then I'll have my brain clear and then I'll be able to pray. And how that's not what Christianity and Catholicism is about. Yeah, it's no. If you're building yourself into the habit of going into that situation to pray, that's when the feelings kind of might follow. Mm -hmm. And even if the feelings don't follow, you're still doing better than you would be if you weren't putting yourself into that habit of prayer. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's so good that we see how much virtue is related to the concept of religion in Jane Austen. Because I think because she doesn't really pontificate about faith very much... She doesn't like essays. No. Like a lot of authors of her times. But that doesn't mean that religion is not part of the way that she's seeing the moral makeup of her stories. Yeah. So I think that leads us into our final... You'll be relieved to know it leads us into our final example. We're going to skip Northanger Abbey. Don't skip it if you're reading it. It's great. But we are running out of time. So we want to get to Persuasion, which was her, her final novel that she wrote. May I let the cat out of the bag and say that it's Phoebe's favourite one? Not quite. Not quite. Pride and Prejudice is my favourite. But Persuasion is a very close second. I, I'm the exact same except swap it out for Sense and Sensibility. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's one of the shortest. I would say if you're reading them, start with Pride and Prejudice. And then Persuasion or Sense and Sensibility are pretty good bets. Emma's a bit longer and you can maybe find it difficult because... I'm pretty sure Jane Austen said that in Emma she wrote a character that everybody would hate mm-hmm. and then made them like her. Yeah, that's very much the case. Yeah, and then Mansfield Park is, again, quite long mm-hmm. and quite difficult in some ways. And then the tricky bit about Northanger Abbey is that it's referencing another book. Or really um, another genre. Another, it's yeah. very much a, like a kind of satirical look at the gothic romantic genres that we were talking about at the start and has quite long treaties on the nature of like literature and fiction but it is also very fun the only thing I would say about putting persuasion so early is I read them in order of publication and there is something really beautiful in how mature persuasion is as a story that's true actually I think it was one of the last ones I read as well yeah um so there is that So Persuasion is a novel about this 27-year-old lady called Anne Elliot. And as someone who is shortly to turn 27, I can tell you with great assurances that in Jane Austen's world, I am practically an old and infirm maid. (laughs) Yeah, you're not quite, but pretty much. Yeah. So you've got this character who was proposed to when she was 19, fell in love with this guy, and from the influence of her godmother, was kind of put under obligation to end that engagement. And that's a really interesting one because not only is she made miserable, she obviously upsets him greatly. And when he comes back into the novel later, he spends about three quarters of it being really angry with her and therefore not talking to her because he sees her as she that gave him up. And yet, even when she's at her most miserable, 
she never regrets having done what she saw as her duty. Yeah. She does regret breaking it off Mm -hmm. because she says that if she was ever in the situation that her godmother friend was in, she would not give that advice. Like, she thinks she would have been happier in continuing the engagement. Mm -hmm. But she still sees her duty as she that stood in a mother to me told me to break it off. And that anything beginning with the inauspicious beginning of breaking the duty to her godmother would not have resulted in something good. And that's a really telling one that's very distinct from propriety as a form. Mm -hmm. Because her father also disapproves. Yeah. But her father is a ridiculous fop of a character who's obsessed with vanity. Yeah. And she does not see his opinion as worth breaking off the engagement for. She would have persisted in opposition to her father. Yeah. Because the her moral judgment is more sound than her father's. Yeah. Whereas for her godmother, that's who she's called on to trust and obey. And therefore she does. Yeah. And I think that's so important because we really, again, a bit like the we don't see the importance of keeping our word. We don't see the importance of duty in the same way. Mm, Absolutely. And that there is a respect for the people that are owed our duty. And she does have a degree of duty to her father in the sense that she still physically cares for them, like minds their household, because her father and her sister are too idiotic to manage anything. Yeah, and she also feels for them whenever their pride is insulted mm-hmm. like truly insulted yeah like she's the one who feels it most when her father has to leave like his stately home and go live in a house in bath because he's too poor to keep up the estate yeah and she feels for his loss in a way that he's not able to yeah because all he sees is vanity and he's been able to be flattered into this course of action yeah and so it's not just that oh if someone's sort of an idiot that they don't deserve your duty like she does act with a sense of duty towards him but that if she were to go against her moral integrity to enact what he wanted that would also be wrong like you can't you can't forsake your own morals for someone else's just out of duty but you have to if you're going to forsake what you think is right for someone else's you have to trust that person's judgment yeah and what she's saying is that as a 19 year old She's in the position where she's expected to be trusting an, an elder. old elder's judgment. Yeah. And that elder can't be her father. But it is the her. lady who's acted as a mother to her and guided her mm-hmm. since her mother, own mother died. Yeah. And so it's a really beautiful story. You know, you only have to look at Jane Austen's title. Pride and Prejudice. Sense and Sensibility. Persuasion. Like, she's obsessed with moral character and the journey from one position to another. Like, she just has this clarity of vision of, of what a moral journey looks like. Like, someone was comparing the stories to, like, The Pilgrim's Progress. This this journey towards God and, and refinement. And I think that that's what makes these stories kind of eternal. Yeah, they're so compelling. Yeah. And in Persuasion, you also have this, like, counterfoil of Anne's older sister, another Elizabeth. But in this particular case, Elizabeth is trying to get out of doing something right that she doesn't want to do. And it was a struggle between propriety and vanity, but vanity got the better, and then Elizabeth was happy again. That kind of convincing yourself... Like, she just talks herself through it and convinces herself that the course of action she wants to take is the more comfortable one for everyone else as well, and the better one, and talks herself into into easing her conscience. Yeah. And it's 
that kind of example of how we can talk ourselves into thinking that we're doing right and just kind of smother over our conscience or actually stand firm and do it no matter what the cost. Yeah, and so I hope that's a nice introduction. I'm sure it was, like we said, a bit of a flurry of names and places and, and books, but that a look at what is at the heart of Jane Austen and why it can inform us as Catholics and as Christians and what it means to live a life of virtue and how clearly you can see that. I, I In some ways, like we said, Jane Austen doesn't have a lot of time for sermons and essays about virtue, but it's because she does it so much better with fiction. Yeah, She does it in a way that's funny and engaging and enchanting and romantic in like our modern sense of romantic. And that the romantic stories of it are so compelling because they're so earned. They're earned by all parties. We've talked about the female characters because they're the protagonists, but almost all the men go through similar growth and self-reflection and self-knowledge. So this is the quote of Mr. Darcy's at the end of Pride and Prejudice when Elizabeth has agreed to marry him on his second proposal. I don't think it's a spoiler in this day and age to say that Elizabeth Bennet ends up with Mr. Darcy. I mean, come on. (laughs) I've been a selfish being all my life, in practice, though not in principle. As a child, I was taught what was right, but I was not taught to correct my temper. I was given good principles, but left to follow them in pride and conceit. Such as I was from eight to eight and twenty, and such as I might still have been, but for you, dearest, loveliest Elizabeth. Yeah, that, like, it isn't one-sided. And to say that Jane Austen is about women having to live up to a certain social standard is not the truth and is not the fullness of what these books are about. They are about all kinds of people learning to grow in in virtue. And And in some ways she holds men to a higher moral standard than Mm -hmm. a lot of other novels. Yes, and it really doesn't pay off to... There's so many great words for men with bad virtue. Cad, rogue, rake... Um, but it doesn't pay to be that person and that she shows that even if they can gain in prosperity by marrying like a rich person that they don't gain in in happiness and that there can be a real sadness with, with knowing that you have not taken the best path and so I think there's such wonderful examples of for us like primers almost on how to cultivate virtue in our lives even in this modern day or probably more importantly especially in this modern day so I hope that's a nice introduction to the books of Jane Austen. I forgot when we were listing the ones and the order in which you should read them. If you want to like a taster of Jane Austen but don't want to dive in, you could read her one of my favourite things she's written, which is the little booklet she wrote when she was 15 called The History of England from the Reign of Henry IV to the Death of Charles I by a Partial, Prejudiced and Ignorant Historian. And it it continues to be just as funny as it goes on. You can find it online, and I think it's also in a lot of her collections. It's just so funny and so delightful. And she has quite a few positive words to say about Catholics, which (laughs) for a Catholic podcast, that's probably a good thing. (laughs) Naturally. So that is our introduction to Jane Austen. I'm sure Jane Austen will be a kind of author and a topic that we'll return to in the future. I mean, we're better. (laughs) If you guys enjoy it, hopefully, fingers crossed. And like I said, we're thrilled to be back. We just have our one last thing to do, which is tell you guys something that we've been enjoying at the moment. So, Phoebe, do you want to go first? Yep. 
I just finished a book called A Gentleman in Moscow. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a really excellent read. It's quite a recent novel, which is kind of nice for me to read something that wasn't published 200 years ago. But it's a really interesting tale of a Russian nobleman trapped in a hotel under house arrest during the Russian Communist Revolution. Mm-hmm. So they almost kill him, and then they go, no, we'll just put you under house arrest in your place of current abode. Mm-hmm. So he's 25 at the time. And it follows him for 40 years in the same hotel. Wow. In, like, the heart of Russia and all the different kind of goings-on. It's very interesting, very well written. Yeah, it's definitely been one... I think it either was nominated or it won a couple of awards. It's definitely been on my radar that I definitely want to, to read that one. For me... I'm going to name two things because I feel like they kind of go in tandem. I don't watch a lot of television, but and yet in the last two weeks I've managed to watch two very, very intense, high-production, dramatic TV series. So I was visiting my friend Zoe and she was dying to show me all of Band of Brothers. So we watched that over the course of a weekend, which was incredible and just astounding and because it's actually been out for many years now I think it was released in like the early 2000s and it still stands up so well in terms of its production and it's so captivating as a true story of of people in war and the heroism and the harrowing suffering that they endured in World War II and then the other one that I watched which is a much more recent one which was Chernobyl which only came out at the time of recording it only came out like a month ago and that was also transfixing and managed to be even more horrifying than Band of Brothers. <laughs> I did not watch either of these. Uh, but they were both incredible, like, real masterpieces of, of the form and just really fascinating in terms of their storytelling. So I would recommend both of them. And so all that's left for us to say is goodbye, but we'll be back again soon this time, which is thrilling. So goodbye! Goodbye! This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.